0: Welcome to the 7th Art Podcast, this is Brian Robertson, I'm one of the producers for the 7th Art. Uh, Joining me is Christopher Herron. Hello. Chris is the host of the magazine, the video magazine on cinema. What you're about to hear is an interview with Serge Bromberg, who is a French filmmaker and film preservationist, who was in town to present his film The Extraordinary Voyage, which is a documentary. That chronicles the restoration of um, one of the only known hand-painted versions of uh, Georges Melies' *Trip to the Moon*. The only. The yeah. only one. The only one. Right, and um, Serge is also he works for uh, Costa Gavras at the <laughs> Cinematheque. You think they, they, he works for him? Like, well, they're they, buddies. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, he,
1: I guess so, right? And uh, yeah, he's 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 also made another famous documentary about a a lost film. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, L'Enfer. L'Enfer, about uh, Henri Georges Clouseau's film Inferno. Right. A film that never got made. Well, it was made, but it was never released.
0: Yeah, he, he it was an unfinished film. Yeah. And he offers a partial reconstruction of it. Right. Um, Serge, is, Serge is interesting. Um, Serge has had come through to Toronto and literally just stepped off of a, like a seven hour flight. And um, we conducted an interview at the French Consulate on Bloor Street. Um, and. Uh, yeah he's he's kind of a he's a personality Serge um, he has a company called lobster
1: films where he preserves films um, he works as we said for the French Cinematheque mm-hmm. he's, he's a filmmaker and all of these things kind of combined to speak to what we called the profile was a section that we had a lot of before and now we don't do which is specifically interviews with people that work in the film industry that aren't necessarily filmmakers right. so we were Especially interested in his, his role as a film preservationist and, and a presenter of, of films, mm-hmm. uh, silent films, mm-hmm. in his uh, Retour de Flamme series. Uh, yeah, he was. He, we had a lot of things to talk to. We had not a lot of time to talk about it. He had just gone off that flight. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an interesting interview. Uh, I think that I'll always remember the fact that I asked him a question about the interesting credits that are used on The Extraordinary Voyage, the credit he specifically gives himself. And he, I think, tells me I'm crazy. I think, <laughs> I think he says that I am crazy and that I'm wrong. And I,
0: what, of was, course, wait, what was the actual, uh, what, was, what was the questionable?
1: I think that I was, I think it said something like. As um, imagined by. As or imagined or, or as by. dreamed by. Like, I right. think there's like, it's a, like a kind of cute way of. Of, of, saying. of saying that he was directed, but like, you know, this was a labor of love and yeah. I think it was playing off of that And it was mm-hmm. you, you really did have to have a kind of belief That this could be done this this very intensive restoration mm-hmm. And it, it's a lot of fun in this documentary the extraordinary voyage and uh, so he basically he says that well, I'm crazy and then <laughs> uh, And then there's a point like I don't know how much later like maybe five minutes ten minutes We're talking about something else and he pauses it, and he says no I think you're right. Yeah, I'm the crazy one, and I didn't even notice it when we interviewed. Like I, it was only when I was cutting the the interview that I realized that, that he was referring to. He did remember. Like it was just maybe a jet lag right. Uh, moment. Right. But that I, it's it's one of the the many fun moments that occur in these interviews that we mm-hmm. do uh, that we're happy to leave in. Yeah, it, it is it's a really great interview. Uh, Serge gives a lot of insight into aspects of the industry that maybe aren't as uh, prevalent mm-hmm. in, in in most interviews. Um, I, I particularly liked when he talks about the anecdotes of of, of you know convincing uh, Clouseau's widow to 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 let him embark on the project mm-hmm. of, of partially reconstructing um, Inferno, and also her reaction to watching it. And mm-hmm. I mean, he's also uh, I'm a cinephile of a, a young enough age where where DVDs are an important part and, and the fact that I've, I've known his work through DVD extras mm-hmm. about about restorations, uh, the, the Jean Vigo uh, set from the UK that has a interesting um, kind of look at how he and uh, Lobster Films restored the the audio mm-hmm. tracks uh, for those films. and um,
0: In Extraordinary Voyage, um, it also features in uh, a score by Air yes that's right if you can find it it's a it's a great documentary and it's got an amazing soundtrack
1: and we do we do talk about that we talk about yeah. it's a nice opportunity to talk about kind of like the politics of of selecting someone contemporary to do a a soundtrack to a sound film mm-hmm. which is, is something that you know happens a fair bit now and and, and tends to even be recorded on mm-hmm. on on dvds and there's a keynote dvd i believe for sherlock jr by buster keaton that is a uh, Got some pretty—it's like almost like a John Zorn score, and I'm, I'm wondering like, when when that's all you have, that is like a, an argument that occurs or a debate about you know the fidelity. Mm-hmm. Should it be a score that t- uh, tries to replicate the contemporary um, live score you would have mm-hmm. heard, or do something that's more maybe accessible to younger audiences? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Criterion Collection are good about usually offering both, or yeah, or, right. or in the case of pandora's box i think four mm-hmm. four squares that you can use for that um so yeah if you are interested in questions like these <laughs> this interview will uh will certainly please you enjoy
2: I started collecting films when uh, I was uh, about 10, it was in the late 60s Uh, and at that time uh, watching silent films actually there were no VCRs, no VHS or nothing of the kind. So whatever we could watch was from projectors, uh, Super 8, 8, 9.5 and most of those projectors were silent. So that's the reason why silent cinema went on and on and on. Uh, as soon as VHS arrived, that was the end. Uh, people started to watch newer films in their complete form, uh, because before it was only clips from major films, and most of, most of the time black and white from color films. Uh, and uh, so in the 80s, uh, silent cinema is fading away. But uh, every three or four years, there's a new, star that arrives and says, I want to do something with silent cinema. For example, in 1986, you had Metropolis by Giorgio Moroder, uh, who made a new music and everyone went there to watch the techno music or pop music of the of the time, uh, which of course today is totally all, uh, old-fashioned, but at that time it was up-to-date. And uh, every three, four years, it's something that kind of lifts the interest of the audience for silent cinema. Uh, Obviously, there has been more and more concerts, live concerts with orchestras and new restorations. We can discuss this later on and clearly the artist and uh, Hugo, uh, the Marty Scorsese film, have raised last year a lot of attention to uh, silent cinema. But you know, I'm not a silent cinema man. I'm a global cinema, global cinevore. I kind of Engulf cinema as much as I can. Uh, you know, in France, I'm also I was I have been for 15 years the director of the uh, Annecy Animation Film Festival, which of course is a festival of animation of, of films of today and tomorrow. So uh, I have no complex. There's no, there is no such thing as old or new. Even in the silent days, there were no silent films because that's all there was. So people didn't say, I'm going to see a silent movie, they're going, I'm going to the movie. Uh, well, so there's no silent films or sound films, there's just good and bad films and i rather concentrate on the good ones.
1: And how has how like, DVDs affected this?
2: DVDs is the continuum of VHS. Uh, it didn't basically affect much. Uh, the interest in silent films. There were silent uh, films on VHS. They continued on DVD. The production of DVD was easier. So and it was faster and it was lighter and the quality was better. So in a way it brought a little more attention plus you had this option of doing different tracks and giving bonus which did hardly exist with VHS. Because the limit for VHS was two hours. Um, So overall, I mean, you know, technology improved the pleasure. So the pleasure improved the uh, necessity or let's say the the acquiring decision. But it was not a major uh, shift.
1: Has that changed with kind of the streaming options now with, I know you do Europa Film Treasures?
2: Yeah. Uh, Streaming is totally different. I must say I'm a bit pessimistic about this. You know, when you had DVD, you could get attraction. I mean, one day you have that big option of DVDs here, you have promotion, marketing, you go in the store and you see all those DVDs facing you and say, oh, oh yeah, I I heard that on the news. If you go streaming, uh, then all of a sudden, you're just one drop in a sea of, of films. And clearly those who want to see silent films, or let's say classics, will go for the classics they want to see. But the problem is how to pass the passion, how to keep the flame uh, burning. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that when you don't know what to choose from zillions of films, then what do you choose? I mean, the, la- the film that came out last week. And you don't go for different films. So, uh, in a way, my work as a film restorer and a film buff is most of all not to restore the films, which is a technical thing to do and it can be done, but uh, it's more to restore the amazement of the audience, the impact, the life in the films themselves. With no one to bring up that life, then the films will fade away.
1: And you mentioned kind of Keeping the Flame Alive, which is the the title of your... your That's correct. I
2: didn't do it (laughs) intentionally.
1: And what I'm wondering is, is there a difference between kind of the live performance as far as being more accessible? Because people maybe are just trusting whatever you present versus having to pick something out of a shelf.
2: You know, the problem is to bring people to be uh, there. Uh, Once someone has uh, conquered the, the... the the moment when they they make the decision of going to see a classic film, let's say a black and white film, not to say silent, which is a bit extreme, but only black and white film (laughs) or in France, uh, a film in a foreign language with the subtitles. Once you go and watch one film, which is good, then you realize it's not painful. It's more pleasure and it's a lot of fun. And then you come back. But the problem is that only two or three percent have made that step. Of daring, and they regard black and white as painful, they regard silent as boring, they regard old as liney and ugly, and, and which of course is not true. I mean when the films were made in the first place they always were gloriously looking, they never were meant to be boring because remember the producers wanted the audience to come back next week and pay a new ticket. I mean that's the intention behind this, make money. Uh, you know masterpieces were made to make money. So uh, in a way uh, uh, what I'm struggling for is for that step to be done. Mm.
1: And do you think that like offering kind of a impassioned introduction and live piano accompaniment is kind of the same way as?
2: You know anything is Anyway is good doing a live performance is good doing my speech is good even in France. I must admit this Please forgive me audience forgive me what I'm going to say now is ugly uh, Because I want to restore the audience uh, I, We made a deal with the cinema on the Champs-Elysées in Paris called the Balzac every Sunday morning we invite parents to bring their very very young kids between two and six, seven. They don't know anything about cinema, but they are still open to new ideas. You know, there's a moment when they <coughs> anything with my parents is bad, but when they are very, very young, you can still bring them to that kind of, of show. So we do one hour, sh- one hour shows because they are very, very young. We have an interpreter, a musician in the audience. We have someone speaking the text on the screen because of course they can't read. But most of all, when they come in, we give them an ice cream. <laughs> so it's Pavlovian thing. They, hey, can we go back to the silent fields? Because of course they want an ice cream. And hope, we hope that in 20 years, these poor kids hope uh, uh, will be like, like, you know, like, yes, yes, I'm coming master, silent field. Where is the ice cream? <laughs> that's, that's, you know, anyways good.
1: And that viewing environment sounds like a Nickelodeon, because you've got the families, you've got the
2: kids, yeah. you've got someone inter- like in Japan. That's what it's people. all about. Well, that's what Silent Film was about before 1914. It was like, hey, come on in, you will see travelogs. you will go to India, you'll have a comedy, you'll have a fantasy film and a magic trick, and in the end, you'll have a trip to the moon in colors! That That's how it was. And then you got in, and yeah, of course, you didn't get half of the films that were announced by the Barker, but you had paid your ticket, that was over.
1: And with someone like like, uh, like Air or like the Pet Shop Boys, are these kind of like the older version of that Pavlovian, like, will give you something new, something that's... Well, kind of... Air
2: is certainly part of that uh, idea of bringing, uh, using any kind of, of mean to bring attention to a newer audience. Of course, when you say Air to kids, they know them. When you say Méliès to kids, they don't know Méliès. So how about advertising AIR? People will go to see AIR, then they will realize that there's a film behind this, and then there's an album by AIR which has the same title. So in 20 or 30 years, the name Trip to the Moon will still ring a bell, and they'll have seen the film. and, And so that's the intention behind it, to gain new audiences, of course, of course, uh, the, the music of air is not attached to the film because obviously people who care about the, let's say, spirit of the uh, early 90, 90s and things uh, will want to have classical music and narration. But I mean, for the younger audiences, air is what they want. Let them have air. Plus, it's good music.
1: <laughs> Do you have a preference? I know like some, some DVDs like the, the Criterion Pandora's box has four different... Yeah, well the tim- problem
2: is in the cinema you cannot play four at the same time. Yeah. So uh, in cinemas we play air for the moment, but uh, probably in the next six or eight months we'll skip to other I mean possibilities. Mm. That doesn't mean remove air, but uh, uh, open other options. In the uh, DVD that we published, uh, we kept the air music with the color version, but we also brought the black and white version and with the the black and white we gave all kinds of other options. Piano, orchestra, narration by a single person, narration by five actors, same thing.
1: One thing that's interesting about the Extraordinary Voyage is that the accompaniment is a portion of that like discussing the historical context but also the colorists and the the piracy and I'm wondering um, did you find that it was difficult to maybe put aside the specific film and kind of bring up those historical markers?
2: No, well actually The Extraordinary Voyage turns up to be a rather amazing uh, document, Uh, but it basically shows the facts as they were, uh, the images as they were shot and for some things that could not be filmed, like hand colorists and things like that, we did the reproduction in a very simple way. But basically we're just telling a story and there's nothing as efficient and simple as telling a story once upon a time. And then all of a sudden, you start dreaming. Now, the problem with The Trip to the Moon is that it's at, when it was done in 1902, it was the longest film of its time, but it's only 15 minutes and you cannot bring people in a, in a theater to watch a 15-minute film. So we thought, oh, there's so much to tell about The Trip to the Moon. Why don't we do a, like, 70-minute documentary that will precede the, the, the screening of Trip to the Moon and that will not disclose, not really explain, but let's say uh, show the hidden face of the film. So when you see it after The Extraordinary Voyage, all of a sudden, it becomes ten times more magic, and uh, you know that's how, that's what we've done. Climbing the stairs every single day, we would discover new facts about those fi- uh, about the film. Uh, for example, I, I mentioned it at the end of the extraordinary voyage. Uh, on one shot, when they are entering in into the rocket, on the extreme right of the screen, you have a, a key hanging from a peg. And we don't know what, the key, what that key means, and it probably means nothing. Uh, it's probably the key to the garden. Uh, you know, but because the camera was so primitive, uh, <laughs> probably no one has seen that key before us.
1: <laughs> now, with the, um, the, did, you, did you intentionally notice the kind of mirror between analyzing the techniques, the, the technologies of the time, and the current ones that are occurring with the restoration? It seems to cross over, especially with the colorizing, because you're using really complicated technology now to kind of interpret what was much more simple then.
2: It's really difficult to 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 explain. Uh, to tell you the truth, there's so much to say about the film itself. There's so much to say about the restoration, the techniques used in the old days, the technologies used today, that uh, it's. Uh, well, the first draft of the, of the Extraordinary Voyage was more than two hours and a half. And for me it was flabbergasting, it was thrilling, we explained everything, it was just a lesson in film restoration, but it was not a film. So we had to cut it short uh, to about 67 or 68 minutes to give it the impact and the nostalgia and the uh, dream, uh, the vision. Uh, So, yes, it's uh, really elaborate technologies that we explain in a very simple manner. Yes, the technologies 1902 are based on the same intentions of the technologies in 2012, uh, which means show something that the eye cannot see. Uh, And of course, if you film something that the eye cannot see, then people will buy their ticket to watch it in the theater. Now, remember, there's something really tricky. Today when you watch Avatar you watch special effects, they are glorious, they are so perfect, but of course you know there are special effects. So you say, oh well, that's nice, great story, efficient image, but you know it's digital. In 1902 you have those six or seven poor astronomers with simple jackets in front of a board with painted rocks and someone tells you this is the moon but in 1902 people believed it. They didn't know what cinema was about and they thought that that film was actually shot on the moon. Which brings us back in the age of illusions, the age of magics, which also brings us back to this legend that probably you know that in 1969 the Armstrong, Aldrin and Collins never went to the moon but everything was filmed in Pinewood on the set of uh, Kubrick, uh, Space Odyssey. That's you know, same stories, different ways, but basically the same story throughout the ages.
1: I was thinking of the the Vigo. Uh, um, Atalante. Uh, you no, know, the sound, like just the sound restoration uh, documentary, <laughs> talking about you know wanting to remove the hiss, but not too much, and and it's something that happens now with Blu-ray and and kind of the digital grain.
2: Yes. Well, the first chance we have is that there's always the possibility of keeping the original track read at best, then uh, try to improve it uh, to today's standards. For example, that that's a very strange story. We, we just uh, uh, restored the sound of uh, Children of Paradise. And Children of Paradise, uh, you know, in 1945, when the film was released, the speakers in the theatres were very, very bad, almost deaf to the very extreme bass and extreme, uh, how do you say, uh, Treble. treble. Mm. Uh, So the sound engineers would push the extreme low and extreme treble in order to try to have something go through. Of course, they did that intentionally for the speakers of the time. And the result was that you could get a little more bass, a little more treble that you would have otherwise. But if you read the soundtrack, or let's say the sound negative today, with scanners and the best machines you could think of, then you have all the, the bass that is so loud and the treble that is so loud. And of course, it is not the intention of the sound engineers at that time. The intention was to try to put something through. So today we have to be the interpreter and try to get the same effect that they were seeking in 1945 with new technologies. So that's where it becomes a bit tricky. But you know, uh, uh, discussing about what… Restoration is not interpretation. There are rules, there are state-of-the-art things to do and things that cannot be done. If you say, oh, I recognize that kind of restoration, it was made by this man, then that means it's a bad restoration because it has been interpreted. It looks like the restorer. Restoring a film is a modest work. We're using every step academically, but in the end, we just tiptoe back and the film remains all that needs to to be known. Today we're at the age where we say restored by and everyone comes here and that's the the promotion. Yes, I have restored this and that. But if you have restored it well, then it shouldn't be, uh, uh, it shouldn't show. Mm. And uh, of course, adding the air music to the trip to the moon, for example, uh, is an artistic decision, Mm. but it is not restoration. Mm. Uh, Restoration of the film itself was made state of the art.
1: And it's the same with kind of the, the way the color breathes. I guess the color uh, for for *Trip to the Moon*, like no, no, *Color of
2: Trip to the Moon* is exactly the color of the original print. You know the difference between uh, restoring a film and restoring a print. Every cinema had a different print running through a projector. Now, *The Trip to the Moon* in color was not filmed in color. It's one print that was hand-colored frame by frame with a brush. So basically what we're restoring is not the uh, ultimate restoration of the color version of Trip to the Moon. It so happens that this is the only print of Trip to the Moon hand-colored that survived. So what we're restoring is that print and nothing else.
1: But there, there is a question of like ensuring that you maintain the integrity yeah. of how it would yeah. look at that. So,
2: so yeah, that print and nothing else. Mm-hmm. In that print, for example, when the uh, colorist was, you know, they would dip, she would dip her brush, then do 20 frame. So after the 20th frame, of course, the, there would be less ink or color on the brush. So the, 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 the color would, would fade, then dipping more, and all of a sudden, the color would be brighter. So when you watch the film, the color breathes. And what we preserved is the breathing of the color that is the result of the way the colorist has hand colored that very print. But you know, another print would breathe another way. Maybe the colors would be different. We don't know. Well, there's no other one anyway, so so far so good.
1: Now at the direction of the documentary, what goes into your decisions as far as what clips outside of uh, Melier that you would use to maybe convey a certain sense of that historical moment, which is also true for L'Enfer and also um, the chaplain today, or like <coughs> the supplementary kind of visuals.
2: I couldn't tell you. <laughs> you know, I, I, truly, uh, there are hundreds of clips I would have loved to include in the extraordinary voyage. Uh, for, the, for Inferno, we basically showed everything we had. When I say everything we had, it's not true, but because there were multiple takes, so in this case we would use only one take, but uh, uh, basically everything we had is there. Uh, for Méliès, of course, we have 200 uh, films that survive and uh, we had to show three clips. So we showed clips that were, had some different uh, Uh, aspects. One of the clips deals with the moon, another one uh, deals with the uh, multiple exposure and uh, the balance is called the the incredible balancing feat uh, which we used for a good reason uh, that of course is not explained in the film but in 1906 Segundo de Chamon was the pirate of Méliès, officially uh, hired by Pathé, had made the same kind of idea with a film called The Kiriki, The Japanese uh, Acrobats. But Méliès did it more cleverly and he did it in 1898 when Chomon did it in 2006-07. So that shows how Méliès was far ahead of any of his competitors.
1: The, the use of the kind of talking heads also is interesting because it was something like L'Enfer, it's giving uh, uh, kind of understanding of the moment, uh, what Clouseau was doing at the time, but with with the extraordinary voyage, you have kind of current directors uh, speaking back, and it's the same with Peter Lord and in, in the Chaplin.
2: Yeah, uh, actually, uh, Peter Lord in Chaplin today gives his vision of what Chaplin did in City Lights, uh, Inferno the talking heads are people who were actually on the set and they're explaining us a story which is rather stunning because it is not the story I knew. The first person who told me the story is Mrs. Cluzo, Ines Clouseau, and she was not a historian, she was hardly on the set and she told me the story she had built in her mind, which was totally untrue. So by asking many people what they have gone through, it was like in Rashomon, asking many people what they have seen and the end result is an impression of what probably happened on the set. Now for Méliès, all that remains is the uh, way uh, directors of today relate to the works of a visionary genius of the early years of cinema. So I asked them their feeling, and it was also a way of saying, hey kids, see people that you love today, that are doing great films today, love Méliès. So you should inquire a bit more. And I think it worked.
1: And there's also, uh, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, kind of metal layers that happen because you have Tom Hanks recreating, and also in there you, there is the like, the reperformance of the certain...
2: The re-performance in L'Enfer is a big, big deal, and I'm so happy it happened, but uh, when I did it, people told me you're just committing suicide. Uh, and I think they were right. Uh, so uh, yes, uh, it, it's uh, the, the Tom Hanks reconstruction of course is pre-recorded material made in 1998. So we had this, which was of course for us a unique opportunity because that saved us the cost of reconstructing the set and it helped us show how it worked. We are not Scorsese and we are not uh, able to reconstruct the set of Melies on the Kingdom of Fairies, just as Mardi did, and I'm so happy he did. A magic moment in the history of cinema. We are there watching Melies shooting and Scorsese is he- here filming everything. So, uh, but uh, for Inferno, it's a bit different, but probably we'll discuss this later on. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, now, with Melier you you mentioned showing things, giving people kind of insight, and, and it, part of the story is that many of his films weren't available for a long period of time. And that's, still remain yeah, unavailable. Yeah. yeah, it's a recurring thing with, uh, like, you were sort of King Vidor's uh, The Magnificent, was that?
2: Bardelis the Magnificent, yeah, yeah. 1926. Yeah, like yes. that's
1: something, something that seemed lost before then, or… It, just, it was totally yeah, yeah. lost. And there's another example. Um, but, <laughs> the disco- but
2: the discovery of the magnificent would take fifteen minutes to explain, oh. and it's even more magic that the dis- than the discovery of uh, Inferno and Trip to the Moon altogether.
1: So, is it What, what is the story?
2: You don't have fifteen minutes, <laughs> and we neither don't. do I. <laughs> um,
1: it's interesting though because there's kind of an, a writing of wrongs, and that's something that comes up with La as well, like something that through its kind of restoration, it kind of achieves a place it didn't have at the time. And is that something that's a kind of pleasure that you can take out of
2: out of this world? I, You know, I don't take pride in restoring major films and claiming I'm the one who did them. Mm. Uh, I, the only thing I'm concentrating on is the pleasure of the audience and that they learn and that they feel and that they share my passion. Uh, if they do that, if I can share this, then it's a hit. Uh, for me, at least, and for the audience also. So that's what I've always been seeking. Remember that I'm also, for 20 years, I've been doing live shows where I'm playing piano, showing silent and sound films. I know when the audience laughs. I know what they like and what they don't like. I know the feeling it gives to play piano on a film people don't like. And all of a sudden, the silence is so silent. And you're trying to overdo everything, but of course it doesn't work. So. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a musician. Yeah. Uh, maybe in a way, you know, people like Chaplin or Buster Keaton, they had been in vaudeville for so long before they made piano that they knew the pacing. They knew when the audience laughs, they knew that when the audience laughs, then you should give them four or five seconds before the next gag arrives. Uh, so that's the kind of thing the other one didn't know. Mm-hmm. and that, maybe what makes the difference. Well, I try to give the music I feel about a discovery or a restoration, and then if I share that music and people like it, then I'm happy.
1: But with L'Enfer, there's a kind of a personal quality to that project. Like, you as a a person are more kind of invested in that, even with the elevator.
2: L'Enfer, listen, you know the the song uh, by George Gershwin, I Got Beginner's Luck? Because the first time that I'm in love, I'm in love with you. So not you. I mean, <laughs> uh, got this. So um, the uh, the thing is, uh, the Inferno is such a legend. Mm. The way it happened is so unbelievable. I mean, the way I got stuck in this elevator, which opened everything, it was like destiny uh, knocking at the door. So uh, I thought, well. Uh, because Destiny has knocked at the door, I've been willing to make films for 30 years, but very quickly realized I was not Orson Wells, and I'd rather not make films than be a low-end uh, director. That's why I did what I did through in my life. So I thought, oh well, this is the moment. So basically, it's the moment when I decided I would direct a movie uh, for the big screen. And of course, it's very emotional. I mean, when you do that, it's like, are you crazy? Why are you saying this? Then it's a movie about a legend by a director called Clouseau, which is of course the, the giant of the giants. It's like, who am I to decide that I will do a film about Clouseau with Romy Schneider and thing and with Berenice Bejo, who now is so big and at that time she was big already. So it's like, yes, it's, it's a unique meeting. Uh, but what the people told me is, you know, the first film is difficult to, to, to make, but the toughest one is the second film. Because you've given everything you have in the first one, then the second one you should, uh, you will a bit dry. And I'm glad that the second film is totally different, deals with totally different issues, and uh, and I have a third film in the works. That'll be so different from the first two, that'll be even more fun.
1: And there's no hints of what that is? Not the slightest <laughs> hint. So w- with The Extraordinary Voyage, if I'm remembering cor- correctly, the credit is as imagined by. It says as, ima- as opposed to like directed by.
2: Uh, of The uh, Extraordinary yeah. Voyage? No, I don't think so. I think I don't think we, we wrote a film by. or. No, we did not. We did not imagine it. Hmm. You no, know, The Extraordinary Voyage is a film we lived. Uh. Basically, in, f- in 65 minutes, you leave again a story that lasts 12 years. Remember that the restoration of Trip to the Moon is not only the most expensive restoration ever in the history of cinema, but it's also the longest. It's a 15 minute film and it took 12 years to restore. When we started the restoration in 1999, the technologies that would allow us to complete it were not even imagined or conceived. So, you know, basically we, we, we moved as we could one step at a time and uh, it's, it's like he it was totally crazy. I mean, now that I think about it, you're right, I'm crazy, you're right.
1: <laughs> so the, the film, um, did you feel the weight at all? of? Of making a documentary that's kind of about restoration, because usually those are just something that are kind of bonus features. They're not something yes. that's kind of presented as yes.
2: They are bonus features. Uh, films about restorations are bonus features. That's really too bad, because uh, restoration of a film is like a can be an adventure. So when it's boring, it doesn't need to be told, and then it becomes just a marketing tool. But when it is stunning, then let's tell the story. Uh, Inferno is not the story of a restoration because there's nothing to restore, but it's a story of a discovery. Uh, We have words, but we don't have the complete sentences, so let's try to put things in such an order that it will tell us something. Uh, Extraordinary Voyage is basically two stories. I mean, a man wants to get to the moon with dreams, and he gets there with cinema, and we want to bring trip to the moon, back to life, and we bring it with technologies. But it's basically the same dream. That's all that counts. I mean, who cares about cinema or technologies? Who cares if the film is shown on a huge, huge screen or medium screen? What's important is that the dream of Melias is conveyed, and that's what we we all seek.
1: You have someone like Tom Burton who becomes I mean, like a protagonist.
2: <laughs> Tom Burton, uh, not Tim, Tom. Uh, Tim, Tom Burton is a, is, a, is a fantastic fellow. He has done his, almost his entire career in animation, which I didn't know, and today he concentrates on playing uh, guitar in a jazz band and uh, restoring films for Technicolor. Uh, and meeting with uh, Tom Burton, was a unique moment, you know. Uh, I, I must thank first uh, the Group Hamagan Foundation and Technicolor Foundation who have been backing the last year of the restoration. And one of the conditions was that it would be done at Technicolor uh, Digital Ser- uh, Creative Services in uh, Hollywood. So I went there because I wanted to meet the, the crew. And I was like, Mm-mm, oh, it won't work, it won't. Work. I- I- I'll be dealing with geeks, you know, like tech guys. And, uh, and, and I arrived with a little can with some film. And then I see Tom Burton and he, he smiled. He looked so friendly, he looked a bit like Meliès. Then I opened the can, and the minute, the second he saw the film, I knew he was the right man. It was like, <coughs> and. and you know, not, not, not that, let's say a little silence of half a second, but that was enough.
1: And there's a, a historian role as well in these films that, that I think maybe gets downplayed. And I'm wondering what goes into the kind of historical analysis that you present, like how much is too much or, or how do you keep it interesting to a, a general audience?
2: Well, first of all, you tell everything you want to tell. Then you show it to your friends and then they tell you it's boring, do it all over again. And then you realize that there are techniques to tell stories, uh, that uh, there are things that do not need to be told because people don't even understand them. Uh, And if there's something you need to explain before you tell the story, forget it. I mean, you have 70 minutes and that's too short. So uh, you, you end up uh, summarizing everything. And you know, uh, when you have a music composed by a composer, it has like 12, 15 piece, a drum, a bass. And, but when you sing a melody, you just sing it with your voice. And what remains is the song. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's say I first built the structure then all that remains is the song. Uh, and if people like the song, then that means the film is, is works.
1: Hmm. And widow widow said something interesting, which was that you can only trust the image, like that's the only thing that can be trusted.
2: Did, did, did Ines say that?
1: I read in an interview with you.
2: <sighs> Ines said so many things. Uh, yes, well, to tell you the truth, uh, Ines told me stories that were so untrue. Uh, She had the final cut in Inferno. Part of the contract was that she could ask me to withdraw anything. Mm. And because I didn't want to have her on my back, I basically made my film until the end. Then two weeks before the Cannes Festival, uh, where the film was uh, uh, shown out of competition, I had a screening with her. The music was not final. We edited the film on the music of Ascenseur pour l'échafaud" by Miles Davis. Uh, but, and we had, had no time to do the final sound mix. It was really just in time. So she watched the film, and of course the first half of the film is great. I mean, it tells the story of how great Clouseau was, and that's what exactly what she had told me. Then of course she had told me that he had been great up to the end. But what my film says is that at some point it like becomes to turn down and becomes nightmarish. So she was sitting by me and we we're watching the film and he and said, Oh yes, 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 yes. And I was says, Oh no, oh no, oh no. And she had never seen the images. So basically for her, it was going back 40 years before. And, and she started to cry, and she had makeup all over her face, and all. Of, and and I, I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm dead. This is she, she's gonna say, Serge, how could you do this to me? And and at the end of the screening, uh, the light comes back, and and for one minute she's silent. And I'm like fake telling to her, hey, how was it, how, how did you like it, blah, blah, blah. But Basically, I was just you know, thinking, what is she going to say? And then she takes my arm, she watches me in the eye and she says, you know, Serge, that's exactly how it was. And, and it was like, ah. Oh. And so it could work and, and she let us go with whatever we said. But I, so she certainly didn't want us to say everything and she didn't want, us to refer too much to the
1: images.
2: (laughs) The images said things that were not so nice to her.